Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The podcast will begin after this message. Today's episode is presented by Bayer. At Bayer, we are raising the bar on transparency by inviting stakeholders to participate in the upcoming EU glyphosate re-registration process. Also, we will evolve our engagement policies that ground our interactions with scientists, journalists, regulators, and the political sphere in transparency, integrity, and respect. To learn more, visit www.bayer.com. Welcome to Politico's EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. Ryan Heath is on holiday, but he'll be back next week with a special edition from the first session of the new European Parliament. In the meantime, this is Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, with the latest in our occasional series focusing on green issues. It suddenly feels like everyone in the European political mainstream wants to be at least seen as green. That might be something to do with all those climate protests and a surge for Europe's Greens in the EU election. Last week's EU summit included an argument not just over who should get the top jobs, but also over whether to set a target of making the European Union climate neutral by 2050. Were Western Europeans right to push for that target, and were Easterners, including Poland, right to resist? We'll discuss that with our regular podcast panellists, Lena Abarus and Alva Finn. And away from the green theme, they'll also pick over the rights and wrongs of the media coverage of Boris Johnson's row with his partner. But first we ask, can capitalism save the planet? A big buzzword in Brussels and beyond these days is sustainable finance. The idea of using financial markets to drive a green transition in the global economy. Everybody seems to want in on the act, but will it work? The European Commission held a conference on sustainable finance in Brussels this week, so let's hear from a couple of people who took part, including the Commission's financial markets chief, and also speak to two political reporters who were there. So we're calling this episode, Can Capitalism Save the Planet? And I've been joined by two people who are going to give the definitive answer to that question. 
Paula Tama is energy and climate reporter at Politico. Hi, Paula. Hello there. And Bjarke Smith-Meyer is financial services reporter. Hi, Bjarke. Hello very much. So let's just get in. We're going to focus on sustainable finance, which seems to be very much the in vogue thing in both the uh, environmental world, if you like, and in financial services. So that's why we brought you both together here. And the European Commission's been getting very involved recently, as we'll talk about in a few minutes. Uh, You guys were both at a conference hosted by the Commission on this subject. And we'll get into some of the speakers from that conference too. But let's just start with the really basic one. Bjarke, what is sustainable finance? Very basically, it's a drive to try and make sure that you're promoting investments inside of companies or projects that actually take the environment into account. So a very rudimentary example would be something like if I'm trying to raise funds to build a coal factory, well, that wouldn't be green finance. But if I was going to build a windmill farm, then that could be defined as green finance. Okay, Paula, any more? Anything we should add to that definition? I think that is the deep green um, more accurate definition of what it is, but the term has been used to cover a broad range of things. So that will be sustainability-themed investment, which actually today make about less than 2% of all the market. But many people use the term to label things such as disinvestment strategies. So I don't tell you to invest into specific things, but out of my investment portfolio, could you please take out things like tobacco or weapons or coal indeed? Right. Okay. So it can also be what you don't invest in as well as what you do invest in. Any sort of guess or or estimates on the size of this market now? How big is the sustainable finance market? Yeah, so it really depends on who you ask. But I mean, there's some rough numbers out there. So the credit rating agency Moody's, for example, in January said that the green bond issuance in 2019 is expected to hit around 200 billion So, I mean, that gives you a segment of that market and the size of it. But if you were to expand it to something called ESG investing, which is just shorthand for environmental, social and governance investing, well, that was expected to hit around $30 trillion in 2018, according to the Global Sustainable Investment Alliance. And those are the numbers that are generally backed up by investment banks like JP Morgan. So that gives you a ballpark. In terms of estimates, I think that Bjarke pointed out the most recent, but in terms of numbers for the European market, we have broken down into different class of what sustainable finance is. The bigger one is exclusions, which hit 10 billion euros. And what does that mean, exclusions? That is what we talked about before. So taking out of investments certain things which are labeled as unsustainable. Okay. But in terms of the best in class, so these are companies and investments which have proven to perform well on certain sustainability or environmental targets, we are talking about less than half a billion. Okay, so it sounds like, as in a lot of these cases, there's a big overarching label, which everybody probably likes to attach to their product. But when you drill down, the kind of hardcore deep green, as you say, is significantly less. The European Commission seems to have got very involved in this recently. Can you tell us, Bjarke, just a little bit about how they're getting involved? I believe they set up some kind of task force. They did. The sort of question was, how do they tackle this to begin with in terms of green finance? Because you can always tackle or target industry. But if the real money makers in the world are really going to get behind the movement of finance, then they have to be encouraged as well. And that was very much the commission's thinking. But they wanted to get a lot of good advice from a task force before doing anything. And that's what this task force itself was set up for. Okay. And what did it come up with, Paula? And what is a taxonomy, which seems to be 
a word they like to use a lot. Yes, so it's not taxidermy. It's let's not get confused. Good. They're not Good stuffing precision. animals. Important. So the commission last year came out with a sustainable finance action plan, which included a number of things. But to stick to the more hard-hitting regulatory ones, they presented three things. One is about encouraging disclosure from asset managers or of the sustainability risks faced by their investments. One is about creating some benchmarks of how green investments are doing compared to, for instance, honorable business benchmark, which are used every day by asset managers. And the more controversial one has been the taxonomy. So this is supposed to be an EU-wide definition of what counts as sustainable investment. And the work that has been done is to go through activity by activity in the real economy, so sector by sector, power, industry, agriculture, transport, and so on, and then see within these sectors what can be labeled as sustainable investments. In a sense, they're going at detail discussing, okay, this would be if you invest in this kind of industry or this activity, that would qualify as sustainable. But if it's not covered in this taxonomy, then it's not kind of certified green. Is that the basic idea? So in every sector, they kind of set a threshold for what counts as sustainable. In energy, for instance, they set 100 grams per kilowatt hour limit of emissions. So that means that anything emitting above is not considering green investment. That excludes things like, for instance, coal or unabated gas plants. But they also have this criteria, which is creating a lot of issues for people called uh, do no um, substantial harm. So, okay, you're maybe helping on the climate change front, but are you sure that your investment is sustainable for the labor rights of people that are involved in it? Or are you maybe not doing some other harm? This for instance, has excluded nuclear, because although it's a emissions-free source of power, we don't really know yet what to do with nuclear waste, which is highly toxic. So mm. it's a call that experts have made based on scientific criteria and then putting a threshold where they think that certain things should be included or not. Okay, Bjarke, we're going to hear a bit later from someone from the financial services industry. Mm. Are they sold on this idea overall? I mean, um, you know, these are people who believe very much in the power of the market. How do they feel about the idea of people being directed towards certain investments on a you know, basis other than financial return? Well, it's like you say, they really do believe that they should be allowed to let the markets reign. And that's always been very much the mantra here. One of the things that a lot of asset managers point out is that you could make this so much more simple by issuing a carbon tax on companies or forcing companies to publish the amount of greenhouse gases that they actually emit through their activity and then let the market figure it out as a sort of trend. That's what they're sort of pushing for. Instead, what is the general trend at the moment is that regulators are telling asset managers that they must disclose what they're investing in and really focusing on that, while companies are given the luxury of voluntarily disclosing all that sort of stuff. Okay. And what do the environmental organizations say about this? How do they feel about this approach to targeting emissions and and other things that do harm to the environment? So as expected, probably, on the one hand, they think that it's good to tackle the financial service sector because they think the financial sector reflects the real economy and vice versa. On the other hand, they say, well, there is no real obligation on the real economy, so who actually emits to disclose. So we should go hand in hand. We should go on a parallel track. 
On the other hand, I also think that although it's a first attempt and it's very welcome and the Commission has definitely tried to set a science-based standard, it's also only looking at so-called green investments. So the regulation doesn't require everyone to disclose everything about every single financial product, but only those that people market as being sustainable or green. For the rest of it, which, as we said earlier, is really the majority of the market, there is no obligation to do anything. Okay, well, we're going to hear a couple of voices now in this debate. Bjarke, you spoke to somebody from Invesco, Elizabeth Gillam, who is the um, head of EU government relations and public policy for Invesco. Tell us a little bit about what you asked her first. Well, Invesco are a big, big part of the asset management industry. So they have a presence here in Brussels and they obviously want to make sure that the asset managers are regulated proportionally within the whole economy. Now, Elizabeth has been following this debate around taxonomy and green finance very, very closely. Specifically on the things that she was driving forward on was that to some extent that the industry has been targeted in a way that maybe isn't the most efficient way of going about this. Okay, and let's hear, I think you began by asking her if she thought the financial services industry had been targeted or unfairly singled out here. So I think probably unfairly is too strong a word. I guess what we see is potentially a disconnect. You know, we are part of a broader system and therefore if we want to fundamentally change the way that system works, you need all the different parts of that system to also be changing the way that they're operating. And so what we see is that a lot of the regulation that is coming down the track at us is mandatory. So we're going to have new disclosures on sustainability, which will be mandatory. There is discussion about whether the taxonomy will also be mandatory or whether it will be voluntary. Whereas if we look at, for example, the new non-financial reporting guidelines, which will apply to the companies, who obviously are the entities we're investing in, for them, it's voluntary as to whether or not they report on those issues. So they're subject to some level of disclosure, but for them it's voluntary as to whether they go into all the detail. They have much more flexibility as to how they disclose. So that's the main area where we feel there's maybe a a sort of mismatch between the different parts of the system and that we as intermediaries will be required to disclose on the basis of things where we don't necessarily have the relevant data from those companies that we're investing in. So has the Commission put too much focus on the financial services industry to try and tackle the problem of climate change? So I think that the financial services industry definitely has a role to play, but that role is supporting the transition. And therefore, we need to move forward on all fronts. I think that there has been a lot of focus on finance. And I think there's a risk that the finance industry is being used to try and avoid making those more difficult decisions that impacts the real economy. So the scapegoat in a way. I mean, your words, not mine. But in a sense, that's the risk, which is that there's a risk that we're being asked to step in and make essentially political decisions. You know, So one of the questions that's being debated is the role of nuclear in the energy transition. This is a hugely political decision. And I think that there's a very big question as to whether the financial services industry is the right place for those political decisions to be made. As far as some policymakers put it, I mean, they're saying that this isn't regulation that's specifically pointed at the financial services industry, but more a facilitation. So introducing rules that help the financial services industry. Do you have any sympathy with that idea? So we'd always agree that disclosure is helpful. 
I guess where we see a challenge is that we are intermediaries, we are part of a broader system, and therefore for those disclosure requirements to work properly, we need to get that data from somewhere. So we are investing in companies, projects, governments. We need those entities to be providing us with the relevant data um, for us to then be able to discharge our disclosure obligations. So that's the main challenge as we see it, is how do we get the entire system working and all of the various pieces of regulation all pushing in the same direction and trying to mitigate the risk that potentially there are disconnects between what we're doing in the financial services industry and what other parts of the economy might be required to do. So one of the arguments that the Commission has been putting forward is that we need to hurry up on coming up with data, essentially, because we don't have the luxury of sitting back for 25 years and letting this thing sort of develop by market standards as is. I mean, do you feel that that argument is strong enough when we need to start from ground zero when it comes to disclosing specifically what financial instruments we're investing in or financial products we're investing in? So we do need to speed up. I guess the challenge here is that the disclosure obligations that we will be facing will be mandatory. The non-financial reporting guidelines and the climate-specific supplemental guidance will be comply or explain for companies. So one of the questions is if they are serious about speeding up the transition, serious about speeding up data and disclosure, then why not move to mandatory disclosure for the companies themselves? Right. So not just sort of make this a mandatory thing for financial services or asset managers, but make sure that it's fair game for everyone. Precisely. So if the commission hasn't quite gotten this right, then what in your mind is the best way forward? There are a couple of things. So one of our starting positions was always we want to mainstream both climate but broader sustainability and environmental and social governance. For too long, this has been seen as a small niche of the industry. And therefore, we need tools that work for everyone. And that's going to be the biggest challenge. I think the other key challenge as part of that is therefore not focusing on what is already green, but how do we focus on companies and how they're moving towards the goal? You know, there's a lot of talk about you know, achieving climate neutrality by 2050, i.e. it's not about companies that are green today, but it's how do we get as many companies as possible to be climate neutral by 2050. And before I start asking you about like hurrying that up, I'm just wondering how is it that asset managers can actually help that process? So one, which is the bit that the commission is very focused on, is where we invest our money. That's only one of the things that we can do. We think that one of the most powerful things we can do is by being active owners of those assets. So by investing in these companies, we become shareholders and we get to talk to those companies about what they're doing. And therefore, we can have conversations with them. Give me a practical example. I mean, talk to me about a company that you then were to invest in specifically and how you were to then pressure that movement towards a greener economy. So we have quite a few good case studies in our reports that people can look at. You know, obviously with oil companies, for example, one of the big conversations we have is around, you know, are they using their own internal carbon price? And at what level are they using that internal carbon price and obviously now with the new global rules around scenario analysis is asking them to do scenario analysis of what they think that their company will look like for a two degree scenario and then what would you do as an investor like if you didn't like it then what 
There are two things. So one is continuing that engagement. I think, you know, it's very rare that the answer would just be no. It's more around, you know, continuing that debate. The other one is obviously as shareholders, we can work with other shareholders and we can also vote at annual general meetings. And we do routinely vote in thousands of annual general meetings around the world every year. And we will look at all of the propositions on the table on a case by case basis and look at the merits of those, particularly that relate to environmental or social issues. But that takes time, right? I mean, I think what policymakers are specifically pointing out is that time is what we lack at the moment. I mean, what you're suggesting sounds like a good one if we had plenty of years to do it with. But I mean, is it fair to then ask you whether your suggestion is at all feasible, given the small amount of time that we have? I mean, again, this is where we come back to whether or not a more efficient means would be to regulate those industries directly. Asking the financial services industry to do this is going to be an indirect method. We don't run these companies. We are not directly responsible for their carbon emissions. And therefore, this is the tools that we have at our disposal when we're using them to the full extent that we have them. And therefore, I think there is a question, if speed is of the essence, then maybe we need to consider whether there are other tools that we need to be looking at as well to complement what the financial services industry is already doing. So they've got the wrong guy. We're just part of the puzzle, is the main message. That was Elizabeth Gillam talking to Bjarke at the European Commission's conference on sustainable finance earlier this week here in Brussels. Now let's get another voice, uh, one from the Commission itself. Bjarke, who, who did you talk to to get the Commission's take on this? So this is Olivier Garçon. He's a bit of a big cheese in Brussels. He is the man who heads the sort of regulatory and policy work for financial services at the European Commission. So he does the bidding of the European Commissioner. Important to make that distinction. The one thing that I brought a lot of the industry concerns to his doorstep. You know, the industry feels that they're being maybe unfairly targeted. And Olivier Garçon doesn't see it that way at all. I mean, to him, they're not targeting the asset managers themselves, but they're simply providing the regulatory tools like disclosure in order to move this forward in the right direction. We establish a taxonomy so that investors, all professionals in finance speak the same language when they speak about sustainability. We create benchmarks so that they can have quantitative information about how these criteria are respected. We are enhancing disclosure guidelines. That's not what I would call regulation. I mean, there is nothing in what we have issued, plan to issue, that makes it mandatory for anybody, let alone asset manager, to do anything but explain what they are doing. Okay. I guess that's more of their point. And then when they're talking about the sort of the right way to regulate, as they're saying, is that maybe a better way is to then force companies to publish their carbon emissions and then let the market figure it out for themselves. Maybe, but in my field, which is what I'm busy with is finance, I think, and I believe this is, um, this is, uh, I mean, what everybody believes in the planet, actually, that the best way to do it is to establish taxonomies so that you have a methodology in order to assess, say, carbon, but not only carbon. I mean, the good thing with our taxonomy is that, yes, it deals with reduction of carbon emission, but it deals actually with all six sustainable development goals of the UN. We don't believe it is in our interest to reduce carbon emission to the detriment of biodiversity, for example, or recycling. If you reduce carbon by releasing 
in the sea, tons of plastic. That's not good. That's not what we want. So what the taxonomy is, achieves is actually this. And the first taxonomy, the one we're discussing today, has carbon as an entry. But soon the second one will have biodiversity as an entry. And the difference is, in a carbon taxonomy, you should be positive on your carbon indicator, and you have to be neutral on the other five. When you will turn the wheel and move to a biodiversity taxonomy, you will need for actions to comply with this taxonomy to be positive in the impact on biodiversity and neutral on the other five, including carbon. So we want to build something that is a system of information that is comprehensive. This is the way the Australians, they were actually the first movers started with this. This is the way British authorities researched it for seven years with a number of universities see it. This is the way the Chinese have started to move. So with all due respect to the asset managers you talk to, I believe there is a fair amount of consensus that building transparency in this market is the right way forward. And if they don't like being transparent, I maybe can understand why. Tough luck. A part of that building that process of transparency, one of the other points that they make is the fact that there currently is very little data out there in order to sort of benchmark themselves from. So it's like walking into a whole new sector blind with blindfolds on, as they describe it. Do you mean, do you have any sympathy with that? No, I think that, first of all, I think that data exists. It's a question of releasing it and making it comparable, et cetera, et cetera. And if you have to perform an assessment with the taxonomy, well, you will have to do that work. So I don't believe that. Secondly, we have five to 10 years to radically change. In 10 years, we must have halved our emissions. We are talking about, nobody exactly knows, that depends on what you put in the scope, but somewhere between, say, 180 and 300 billion additional investment per year. So it's a three trillion thing over the next 10 years. We cannot afford, I mean, those asset managers tell you, oh, why this? Why don't you wait that the data exists and then we... No way. I mean, this is exactly what we've been doing ever since the Rio Summit 1992. So we have lost 25 years, and now we have an incredible challenge ahead of us in the next 10 years. And we know what will happen if we don't meet that challenge. We are currently on a trajectory, well, people diverge on that, but somewhere between 4 and 5 degrees Celsius global warming in 2100. And the truth is no scientist can tell you what will happen above 3, because above 3, a number of things will be put in motion that we will not be able to stop and will have irreversible effect on our ability to live in the planet. So, I'm sorry, but with all due respects to people in the market, we have no time. So they will need to find the data, they will need to aggregate it, they will, will need to standardize it, and they will need to perform this analysis. With all this urgency, how can we then make that happen if disclosure is supposed to be voluntary? Look at where we were two years ago. I look at where we were five years ago. I mean, fortunately, finally, the sense of urgency, I mean, is happening. So people understand we have to move uh, quick. Five years ago, nobody was talking about climate finance, but a few people, super green, super motivated, etc. Four years ago, I mean, I, I think we all something collectively to Mark Carney, because he put it at the agenda of the FSDB. He created the DCFD. And then things started to move. 
And in the last two years, it moved considerably. And the appetite of investors for sustainability is very big and is increasing by the day. So I think this is, in the end, this is the market that will lead that movement. But we need to give to the investors the necessary tools so that they can really understand whether what they proposed is sustainable or not and benchmark the various projects. Final question, why are green vehicles not in the taxonomy? Green vehicles depends, do you mean green cars? Yeah, specifically. Well, this is a question I should ask to Nathan. Fair enough. They, well, that, that allows me to make, this is something I think is important. The commission has not been trying to influence the work of the TEG. We, we gave them the task, helped them materially, of course, logistically, everything. But this is their thing. I think it's very good. This is their thing. And it was important that you have the assessment of people that are actually market participants, most of them, about what needed to be done and how it needed to be done in order for it to be implementable quickly and easily. We will now consult and we'll see what the market thinks about it. TG will need to think whether they want to make some corrections after the consultation and then they will hand it over as a final report to the Commission. And it will still be the TEG report. What the Commission will do with it, whether we will choose to amend some things, whether we will disagree with some of it, is a different thing. I didn't want that the TEG internalizes this upstream. I want that it's clear what they think. It's clear, if ever we disagree, I have no idea for the time being, on what, and that we have to defend in the open what we modify and on which grounds. I think that's very important. That was Olivia Gerson, who's the head of the Commission's financial services arm, talking to Bjarke at the Commission's conference here in Brussels earlier this week. Just to wrap up, I suppose this Commission is obviously coming to the end of its term. As various people have mentioned, the clock is ticking in terms of making progress on, on these targets. What can we expect next in this field? Is there more to come from this Commission, the next Commission? Uh, what are the kind of key steps along the road, Paula? What do you see coming up? This Commission has certainly made it a political priority, especially in the last year or so. And we keep hearing from them, the outgoing ones, that they will try and they will hope that the next guys in charge will still make sustainable finance a big part of their agenda. For sure, the services are at work to make some possible options on legislative proposals and other types of action that the next commission can pick from. So we certainly expect to hear more of these words. Right. In the future. And, and as far as I can understand, at the moment, the commission is saying, well, we've kind of drawn up this taxonomy, as they call it, this kind of framework that says what's sustainable and what isn't. Could they go further? Could they regulate? Or are they, are they going to stay kind of out of that business? Do you know? Well, there's one thing that we know will come, and that's an energy tax. But what exactly that look like, we don't know yet. But the Commission has for a long time tried to implement something which could help fight climate change and also introduce something that could initiate a real movement in this. So energy tax is something that we're all keeping a very close eye on. But I mean, as you will have heard from Olivier Garçon, time is running out. So don't expect the next Commission to put their tools down. They have a specific set of climate targets that were put out in the UN's Paris Agreement, and they're supposed to be hit by 2030. And that investment gap that's needed is 180 billion euros a year. And that's just incredible. 
So more to come, and I'm guessing there does seem here in Brussels at the moment that everybody wants to be green, or at least to be seen as green, partly as a result of the European Parliament election and the fact that the Greens are likely to be you know, more pivotal in the Parliament too, and you never know, we might even see a Green Commissioner before too long. So I guess that looks like the direction of travel. Paola Bjarke, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. That was Politico's Paola Tama and Bjarke Smith-Meyer. Coming next, the podcast panel. A message from Bayer. Beginning now, we are raising the bar in transparency, sustainability, and how we engage with our stakeholders. As a new leader in agriculture, we have a heightened responsibility and the unique potential to advance farming for the benefit of society and the planet. In the year following our acquisition of Monsanto, we have heard questions and concerns about our role in agriculture. These concerns matter to us and we want to address them. To ensure future advancements, we need to change. We will pilot a program inviting stakeholders to participate in the upcoming EU glyphosate re-registration process. We will invest approximately 5 billion euros in additional methods for combating weeds over the next decade. And innovation will cut the ecological footprint of our agricultural portfolio. With our solutions, we will reduce the environmental impact by 30% by 2030. To learn more, visit www.buyer.com. Okay, and on a hot and steamy uh, Brussels day, it's a warm welcome to our podcast panel. Hi, Alina Abarus. Good morning, Andrea. Good morning, Alva. And good morning, Alva Finn. Oh, it's burning up in here, isn't it? It is, actually. Although, to be fair, it's actually slightly better outside than it has been for days. But because, for you, dear listener, we even block off the air conditioning in Ryan's office when we record this podcast, uh, we are starting to get a bit hot and steamy here. So we'll press on. Uh, As it's a green edition of the podcast, I thought we'd start by talking about last week's EU summit. Some people may know uh, much of the focus was on uh, who should get the EU's top jobs. The leaders couldn't agree on that. But what went slightly under the radar for some people was that the leaders were also trying to agree on a target for climate neutrality for the EU. The date of 2050 was proposed. Most countries were in favour, but some held out against it, mainly in the East, led by Poland, also Hungary and the Czech Republic. We're not keen on putting that target in the text. And we ended up with a classic EU fudge where the main text did not mention 2050 as the target, but there was a footnote which said that most countries regarded 2050 as the target. And uh, in classic EU fashion, they issued the main text, forgot about the footnote, and then had to reissue it again with the footnote. So a kind of classic Brussels fudge in some ways. But Alva, do you think that the Western Europeans, it was France and then backed by Germany and, and others who were pushing for this, were they right to push for this to be the target and mentioned in the text? Yeah, I mean, politically, obviously, because of the results of the European elections, especially in their countries where green voters really came out, there's the green wave, but also that all of those parties, mainstream parties, also got a bit greener. You know, they started talking about climate change like they were talking about migration, which was an interesting change. So everybody all of a sudden was like, oh, God, the climate issue is happening. So you know, they've gotten a strong message from their voters that this is what they think is important. So obviously, they're going to take that to the European level. This target isn't even enough to stop what we will potentially be an apocalyptic situation. So I think it's 
and it's so far away as well. So why can't we reap the benefits of investing in cleaner sources of energy, including in Poland? But I suppose one thing that we must remember is that that green wave did not materialize in most of Eastern Europe. So I think the main thing that I want to see if we do have a commitment, because I'm a bit tired of these commitments that never mm-hmm. come to fruition. I mean, we have so many of them. This would just be another one. Unless we are backing that with investment. And I think some people, including Macron, have talked a little bit about having a potential investment bank for climate, a European Mm. climate bank. I think that's a very good idea. And I think that you need to bring people with you by saying this is an opportunity for everyone, you Mm. know, and it should also be an opportunity for Eastern Europe as well. Mm. I mean, Lena, the Poles in particular, Eastern Europeans more generally were kind of portrayed by as the bad guys in the summit last week by a lot of the environmental NGOs. Poland obviously is a big coal industry. And there was a suggestion that really the Poles were looking for more cash before they would commit to this. Is there a danger of a kind of east-west divide kind of growing stronger here? As Alva says, Green Party is not such a feature in the east of the continent. You know, do you have any sympathy for the, the Polish position here? I do think it's a process. I mean, there is a divide between the east and the west of Europe in so many different subjects and on so many agendas. So it is a bit of of a process to give time for people to adapt and to change. Not that one summit in Brussels, they have, okay, everybody is going to sign off and there are no national interests. This is not going to happen. It didn't happen in so many occasions. Mm. In addition as well, we have a very green incoming presidency. Uh, Finland has its own target and its goals. So they will take it with a lot of pride not to really accomplish something in, in the coming six months on this topic. Right. I think we can probably expect a bit of a push from the Finns on this issue is one that close to them. Mm-hmm. How do you worry about that east-west divide? It's, it is one of the themes in the EU at the moment. You know, obviously rule of law has become an issue. Hungary and Poland, you know, subject to EU procedures because they're accused of rolling back there. Is this going to be a kind of new growing cleavage between east and west? And how would you try and stop that coming about? Yeah, I mean, I think that the mood in council is really bad. Mm-hmm. And it's been bad for about two or three years. And it's very interesting to me I mean, I come from Ireland that really, really benefited from European membership. And I think the same is true for the other Eastern European members. But they don't seem to be as grateful or at least as willing to toe the line with the bigger member states. And that's because some of them are much bigger Mm. (laughs) than we are. But also they have different politics in play and they're not as, you know, left leaning and I mean, I would use the word progressive, but maybe other people wouldn't, you know, this liberal values that are coming out. And they have more of a mistrust of institutions because of their histories. So I do think that narrative that gets played out in those regions that we're sticking it to Brussels can be very popular because of their particular history. But I do think that they are losing a lot of their political leverage I think every single time they do this and cause a big big spot, people just get more and more annoyed. Um, And I wonder when all of this plays out, when everything is done and we have, for example, the multi-annual financial framework set up, which we know that they're using all of this to leverage the fact that they don't want to be penalised on things like rule of law. They want their structural funds, etc. So what's going to happen, I wonder? And will they give in to them? Because if they do 
we won't progress further because they'll just block absolutely everything. I'm sure we have list- listeners in the east of the continent who, you know, will take great issue with their governments and some of the policies they're pursuing. We should also say though that a lot of those governments are very popular, you know, have a very high scores. So this is the this kind of sets up a a conflict that I don't think is easy to resolve. Uh, but I think one thing that is important to remember is if they're rewarded for this type of behaviour often in their national context they will be rewarded by voters if it works and if it doesn't work then we might be able to see some changes in the politics and who's in power. To me I think it's playing a very dangerous game to give them exactly what they want because then they can return home and say listen I played hardball with Europe and I won and then what you get is voters coming out for you. Whereas if this doesn't work and you cause a divide, and I th- think we saw that a bit with Romania, you know, if you move away from Brussels, but it isn't necessarily going to win you anything, then it becomes unpopular, you know? Mm. So I think we need to be very careful on how we respond to this kind of strong arming because it could play out very well in the polls. Mm, okay, let's move on to away from um, the green themes uh, because it's also still a regular edition of the podcast and talk about probably the most, well, maybe one of the most talked about political stories of the year, which was Boris Johnson's uh, row with his partner, Carrie Simons. This story broke on Friday evening, I think, and I probably don't need to recap it because I'm pretty sure everybody knows what happened. But it did raise a number of questions, including, you know, everybody was put under the spotlight. Obviously, Boris Johnson and his partner were put under the spotlight. The neighbours who had recorded part of this row and didn't just call the police, but then also told the media about it, were put under the spotlight. The media themselves obviously were put under the spotlight in terms of you know, where they write some of them, for example, then shone the spotlight very fiercely on these neighbours and looked into their political views. I know, Alva, when we've talked before sometimes, for example, when we've talked about Jean-Claude Juncker and speculation about his health, that you felt that's a private matter and that sometimes, you know, the media goes too far in intruding into politicians' private lives. What do you think in this case? I think it's different if it would be a domestic violence issue. Which the police says in this case, they went to the property, everybody was safe and well, so they didn't think it was something that merited police action. Yeah, I have to say that when I read the story, I did think this is an argument, but you don't know what's going on behind closed doors. And I think that leaking it and recording it to the media, I mean, I would never do that. Even um, if it was someone you politically, you know, felt very strongly about? If I lived next door to Boris Johnson and I heard that, I wouldn't leak it to The Guardian. I don't think that's ethically sound. But then, of course, if you are The Guardian and you have the views that they have um, and you thought it was a domestic violence situation, then, yeah, you're. I think it's fair game for you to report it. Uh, I think the, the neighbours are another story. And other neighbours have basically come out afterwards saying... You know, we were also concerned, but they also didn't leak it, you know. Mm-hmm. So he hasn't explained himself. And I think that it's not going away. I saw a disastrous interview with him. Um, he also leaked this lo- kind of lovey-dovey pic- or question mark, did he leak it or not? Because a picture he appeared somehow, yeah. somehow from, a picture of them the looking very much. the depths of, I don't know, yeah, their happy memories. It looks almost like an ad for outdoor IKEA furniture, I think. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean... To me, I think that criminal stuff is different to personal health issues. And I also think if you're 
not behaving correctly to your family, including children that you may or may not have. I think those are very serious moral issues that go beyond whether or not someone has an addiction. Mm, I also wonder if it's some of the politicians that we have now, I mean, they are almost like a kind of soap opera character and they almost play to type. So Donald Trump is like that. I mean, you know, it's like a reality TV series. The White House really in some ways uh, seems to work very well for him uh, with his base anyway. And Boris Johnson, though, is a very different type of person. It's that same thing. He's He's like a character the fact that he's often just referred to as Boris. It's almost like this cartoon character who has these adventures. Does that mean maybe that his (laughs) private life is more kind of fair game than it might be for another politician where the persona is not so important? Well, it's called public figure. Mm -hmm. So it is everything in your life, everything relates to your figure, it's public. So uh, once you are getting yourself into politics or in acting or in being a singer, you're, you're just everybody is interested in every single thing you do in your personal or your professional life. But does that mean you shouldn't have a, a private barrier, if you like, or a barrier around part of your private Actually, life? They should be prudent. They should be uh, aware of every step and every single thing you do is monitored, is looked upon, overanalyzed, overwritten about. It happens. But between President Trump and Boris Johnson, I think uh, that we have a, a hair issue there uh, that we have in common. So let's not, <laughs> yeah. not forget that. Okay, so very different, but also both with yeah, very Mix. distinctive hair. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Um, in terms of as a public affairs professional, if you were advising Boris Johnson how would you advise him to handle this because so far it's been sort of brazen and bluster it out but not really say anything do you think that's working for him do you think that's the right way to handle this I think most people would have her out there and in the front actually well she is and she is a PR professional actually so she may well be doing the advising well the most important thing is not to try to make it look better or um, a different version just Mm. the drama happened the best the worst thing happened so now just deal with it as is don't okay. beautify it if i can use this word i don't yeah. think as well like if the police come to your house and the implication is that you have committed an act of domestic violence against your partner i think you just have to say that was not what happened mm. and be very honest because otherwise people will always say and there will always be a cloud of you what happened that night well, there was a, another sort of interesting side note mm. for me as a journalist was that when the Guardian originally went to the police and asked about this incident, the police said they had no record of it. And then the Guardian came back with the incident number and uh, details of the police vehicles that had attended and suddenly the police had a statement. Uh, but that's another topic for another day, probably. So, Lena, Alva, thanks very much. Thanks, thanks also to producer uh, Wei Dong Lin and to Paula and Bjarka for their help uh, in the earlier part of this podcast. And we'll be back next week with another EU Confidential. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.